Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. Today, I would like to talk to you about something called the social contract or social contract theory. This week, I stumbled across a criticism of social contract theory that brought me back to this, what I consider, important fundamental concept of how society operates. Social contract theory forms the basis for society as we know it, particularly Western society, but it has its roots going all the way back to the foundations of history itself, although it wasn't articulated in its modern form until the likes of Plato, Socrates, John Locke, and others that followed after. Now, I'm coming at this from a biblical background, understanding that society began as described in the book of Genesis. And so it is through that lens that I would like to explore the theory of social contracts with you. And in particular, I would like to take you through sort of the history of the development of social contract theory with an eye for how Bitcoin is related to social contract theory. Or, to get right to the point, how Bitcoin is an implementation, not only an implementation, but arguably the ideal implementation of the social contract. All right, so a very fascinating subject, and I'm looking forward to diving into this in detail with you. Now, I'm a layperson, not an expert on social contract theory, so I'm going to rely heavily on the experts, and in particular, I found the article from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy to be very helpful in sort of packaging together the whole history of social contract theory into a digestible form for the layperson. And I'm going to walk you through that, at least through the important points as I see them, and highlight the ways in which Bitcoin fulfills or implements the ideal social contract as we go along. So I'm going to do a lot of reading in this episode, and I'll try to make that clear. So again, this is an article on social contract theory published by the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And I think the introduction and background is helpful here. Social contract theory, nearly as old as philosophy itself, or I would say going all the way back to creation, is the view that persons' moral and or political obligations are dependent upon a contract or agreement among them to form the society in which they live. Socrates uses something quite like a social contract argument to explain to Crito why he must remain in prison and accept the death penalty. Now, I would just interject here that the story of Socrates is kind of a secular version of the story of Jesus Christ and a more perfect understanding of the principles involved when examining the story of Socrates can generally be obtained by re-examining those same principles in the story of Jesus Christ. So when it speaks here of a social contract argument to explain why Socrates needed to accept the death penalty, one could transfer that to the story of Jesus Christ and recognize that a social contract argument can be used to explain why Jesus was constrained to give his life willingly, as Socrates supposedly did, at the hands of the state for an unjust condemnation. Jesus was, in fact, 
fulfilling a social contract. The contract which God or Christ essentially entered into at the foundation of the world in taking responsibility for his creation and ultimately for their redemption in the case that mankind would transgress the law of God. And therefore, Jesus Christ offered his life, gave his life in payment for the transgressions of mankind in fulfillment of this contract or agreement or the foundational principles on which the creation of mankind was established. And that in no way diminishes the fact that he gave his life out of love for mankind. His fulfillment of the contract does not diminish the fact that he loves us. Quite the contrary. He made this agreement, this contract. He promised himself, he pledged himself as security for the world because of his love for us. And by fulfilling that contract, he confirmed his love for us. Okay, so the point here in this introduction to social contract theory was that at least as far back as Socrates, this theory has been in existence. And I'm simply arguing that in essence, it has existed since the foundation of the world. Continuing to read, however, social contract theory is rightly associated with modern moral and political theory and is given its first full exposition and defense by Thomas Hobbes. We'll talk more about him in a minute. After Hobbes, John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau are the best-known proponents of this enormously influential theory which has been one of the most dominant theories within moral and political theory throughout the history of the modern West. And we'll also delve into what John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau had to say as well. In the 20th century, moral and political theory regained philosophical momentum as a result of John Rawls's Kantian version of social contract theory and was followed by new analyses of the subject by David Gutier and others. More recently, philosophers from different perspectives have offered new criticisms of social contract theory. In particular, Feminists and race-conscious philosophers have argued that social contract theory is at least an incomplete picture of our moral and political lives, and may in fact camouflage some of the ways in which the contract is itself parasitical upon the subjugations of classes of persons. So this introduction kind of outlines the course of this article by the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And as we go through this, you're going to see the weaknesses of social contract theory as it developed over the course of history. And you're going to see how Bitcoin fills the gap in those weaknesses. And by the time we come to the end where they begin to examine the criticisms of social contract theory, you'll find that in the context of Bitcoin, those criticisms are no longer founded. There's no basis for the criticisms because of the fact that Bitcoin addresses all of the weaknesses of the social contract theory. I found this very fascinating as I went through it, kind of skimming through this article in preparation for this episode. And I'm really looking forward to delving into this a little more carefully with you, because I think this is a really important subject insofar as social contract theory forms the basis of society as we know it. And last week, in last week's episode, we talked about how God intended for the earth to be replenished, filled with people, and that only when the earth was filled with people, as it is today, when we face the real question of how the earth's resources can be adequately utilized to fulfill the needs of mankind, it is in this unique point in history 
that we have an opportunity, no, not just an opportunity, a necessity to address issues that it was not necessary to address in times when the earth was sparsely populated. And we're going to see that actually come into light here as we go through this examination of the history of social contract theory. And so I think this is highly relevant to the time in which we live, and it shows once more how Bitcoin has a critical role at this particular time in history, at this inflection point that God designed humanity to reach by man's replenishing the earth, filling the earth. All right, so first is the examination of Socrates' argument, and it goes like this. In the early Platonic dialogue, Crito, Socrates makes a compelling argument as to why he must stay in prison and accept the death penalty rather than escape and go into exile in another Greek city. He personifies the laws of Athens and, speaking in their voice, explains that he has acquired an overwhelming obligation to obey the laws because they have made his entire way of life and even the fact of his very existence possible. I'll just say right here again that, you know, the way that the laws of Athens were personified in this Platonic dialogue, again, alludes to the fact that Jesus Christ was the law of God incarnate. So it's entirely valid to look at these arguments in a biblical light, sort of following the template here. So back to these laws, they made it possible for his mother and father to marry and therefore to have legitimate children, including himself. Having been born, the city of Athens, through its laws, then required that his father care for and educate him. Socrates' life and the way in which that life had flourished in Athens are each dependent upon the laws. Importantly, however, this relationship between citizens and the laws of the city are not coerced. Citizens, once they have grown up and have seen how the city conducts itself, can choose whether to leave, taking their property with them, or stay. Staying implies an agreement to abide by the laws and accept the punishments that they mete out. And having made an agreement that is itself just, Socrates asserts that he must keep to this agreement that he has made and obey the laws, in this case, by staying and accepting the death penalty. Importantly, the contract described by Socrates is an implicit one. It is implied by his choice to stay in Athens, even though he is free to leave. Okay, now I'll just mention here, this is the first inkling of the fact that the repopulation of the earth forces us to address the theory of social contracts more rigorously than ever before. Because here it is recognized that there is a certain freedom to accept or reject the social contract of a particular city, the laws of a particular city, simply by fleeing to another city and taking your property with you. Now, this assumes that there is another city with different laws that you can flee to. But because of the fact that the world has become so populated, the cities of the world, the nations of the world, the governments of the world have sort of bumped up shoulder to shoulder against each other to the point where it has become necessary for the entire world to cooperate sort of as one great big social contract. No longer are we living in a time where each individual city can have laws unto itself to a small degree that's still possible and practical. But there is a connectedness among cities that precipitates this, well, you could say this one world government that we all do not like the idea of. But in essence, that's where we're at. And we can't really get out of that. The only question is on the nature of what this one world government is going to be like. And that's where the Bible has a lot to say in the book of Revelation, because it speaks of essentially two systems, and that the choice ultimately boils down to 
choosing one of two systems, either the system of the beast on the one hand, which leads to eternal death. Choosing that system means choosing self-extinction, ultimately. And on the other hand is the system of God's government, which is also a universal law, a one-world government, so to speak, but it's under different principles, principles that foster life and happiness. And so our question today, or the question we face today, is not the question of whether to accept a one-world government or not. It's a question of which one-world government we will choose. The government based on the laws of man or the government based on the laws of God. And in this way, by making this choice, we are casting our vote for the future of the universe because the things that happen here on earth are the proving ground, so to speak, the sandbox for the entire universe. This is how God has seen fit to allow the judgment to take place. Not the judgment of mankind per se, but the judgment of the universe. Remember that in the beginning, before the earth was created, it was Satan who brought the challenge to the heavenly courts that the government of God was deficient and that a more perfect government could be formed by being free from the laws of God, free to do as thou wilt. And Satan's rationale or argument was that that would provide for the greater happiness of created beings throughout the universe, whereas God maintained that his law, which had certain restrictions, was ultimately the perfect law that led to life, whereas Satan's law would lead to death. And this controversy, this case in the heavenly courts, was to be settled here on this planet, on earth. And that's the purpose for which God created the earth, and for which reason he created humanity, and for which reason he commanded mankind to multiply and fill the earth, so that ultimately we would come to this day of judgment, when we, as human beings, would have to address this issue of what a global government must be like, what global government we would choose. We are the jury choosing the outcome. Having seen both sides, we've seen tyranny, and we've also seen liberty and every other form of government in between. We've seen the results of following Satan's law. We've seen death, and we've also seen life and the blessings that come from following God. And the question is, for us as human beings, can we take the 6,000-year history of our experience on this planet, and with that background, can we make, will we make, the appropriate decision to vote in favor of a government that leads to life, or will we vote in favor of a government that leads to death? The choice is ours, ultimately both on an individual level and at a societal level, but one depends on the other. We cannot choose life individually and choose death as a society and still live individually. So this is a very fascinating subject that really drives at the heart of God's purpose for mankind. And ultimately, it has a bearing not just for some kind of outcome for humanity, but it has a bearing on the governing of the entire universe for the eternal ages to come. All right, so let's continue here with Socrates. In Plato's most well-known dialogue, Republic, social contract theory is represented again, although this time less favorably, at least so they say in this article. We'll see whether that's really the case or not. In Book 2, 
Glaucon offers a candidate for an answer to the question, what is justice, by representing a social contract explanation for the nature of justice. What men would most want is to be able to commit injustices against others without the fear of reprisal. Now, that describes perfectly what Satan's suggestion was in the heavenly courts, that Essentially, created beings would be happiest if they were free from all restrictions. In other words, free to do anything they want, even if that would be considered injustice against others, according to the law of God. But he argued that perfect freedom to do anything, including what might be considered injustice to others, without the fear of reprisal, in other words, without having the threat of the law of, of punishment hanging over your head, that that would be the most ideal situation for created beings. Okay? So that's on one extreme, is what Satan proposed as his law. And then it goes on to describe the other extreme, and what they most want, what people most want to avoid, is being treated unjustly by others without being able to do injustice in return. In other words, without being able to retaliate. And again, this expresses Satan's perspective on the law of God. That the law of God places a restraint on how we can respond to others who wrong us. In the Bible, it says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. In other words, we are not free to execute vengeance on others just because they wrong us. And Jesus Christ exemplified that by his willing death on the cross. He was treated unjustly, pronounced innocent by the secular authorities, and yet punished as a criminal. Completely unjust, and yet he committed the results of that to God and did not execute vengeance directly by his own power. So both of these extremes that are mentioned here epitomize the kingdom of Satan. Okay, just to have that clear. Now I'm going to read that again now that you have the perspective of what is really being meant here. It says, in the context of defining what is justice, it says, what men would most want, and we could say what Satan would most want, or what the fallen man would most want. Okay, that's the meaning here. What men would most want is to be able to commit injustices against others without the fear of reprisal, and what they most want to avoid is being treated unjustly by others without being able to do injustice in return. Justice, then, he says is the conventional result of the laws and covenants that men make in order to avoid these extremes. So, in other words, what he is expressing here, to say it from a Christian perspective, is that justice is the middle ground between the one satanic extreme and the other satanic extreme. And that's an entirely sound biblical position, that God represents pure justice, and he stands in perfect center, and anything that veers to the left or to the right towards the ways of Satan is a departure from true justice. Okay, going on. Being unable to commit injustice with impunity, as those who wear the ring of Yigis would, and becoming victims themselves, Men decide that it is in their interests to submit themselves to the convention of justice. In other words, to the ways of God. Socrates rejects this view, and this is why they say his view is a little bit less favorable. But bear with me here. Socrates rejects this view, and most of the rest of the dialogue centers on showing that justice is worth having for its own sake and that the just man is the happy man. So, from Socrates' point of view, justice has a value that greatly exceeds the prudential value that Glaucon assigns to it. So, in other words, to translate this into Christian terminology, it's not just that we're better off following the law of God, which is the middle road of justice, 
because on either side is danger, but it is truly good in and of itself to follow the ways of God. So I think every godly person can agree with that. Goodness is good in and of itself, not just because it is a way of escaping something worse, but that also doesn't negate the fact that on either side of justice is something worse. Those two points of view are not incompatible, and therefore I wouldn't say that's any less favorable of a view of social contract theory. It's simply getting closer to the motivations behind why we want a good society. On the one hand, it's because we don't want a bad society, because that would be bad for us. But more fundamentally, it's because we truly want what is good in and of itself because of the fact that it is good. Okay? Now, going on, these views in the Credo and the Republic might seem at first glance inconsistent, which I hope we've just reconciled that. In the former dialogue, Socrates uses a social contract type of argument to show why it is just for him to remain in prison, whereas in the latter, he rejects social contract as the source of justice. These two views are, however, reconcilable, which I hope we've done. From Socrates' point of view, a just man is one who will, among other things, recognize his obligation to the state by obeying its laws, in the vein that Jesus Christ submitted himself to the death sentence, even though he was innocent. The state is the morally and politically most fundamental entity, and as such deserves our highest allegiance and deepest respect. In essence, that's how we view society today, the rule of law, at least in Western thought. Just men know this and act accordingly. Justice, however, is more than simply obeying laws in exchange for others obeying them as well. Justice is the state of a well-regulated soul, and so the just man will also necessarily be the happy man. So, justice is more than the simple reciprocal obedience to law, as Glaucon suggests, but it does nonetheless include obedience to the state and the laws that sustain it. So, in the end, although Plato is perhaps the first philosopher to offer a representation of the argument at the heart of social contract theory, Socrates ultimately rejects the idea that social contract is the original source of justice. Okay, so I think that was helpful. I think that shows that from Plato to Socrates, we have a developing concept of social contract in which we agree as a society to be bound by laws that are keeping us in the middle ground of justice, that keep us from one extreme of doing anything including harm to others without fear of reprisal, and from the other extreme of being harmed by others without the power to retaliate. In the middle ground is justice that we seek. And generally, as a society, we like to agree to laws that keep us in that middle ground because that's where we are most happy in terms of freedom, but yet also most protected from injustices arising from the freedom of others. Okay, so far we're on a good path, and it seems like Plato and then Socrates have both taken positive steps in describing what is good for society in terms of social contracts. First, by saying that social contracts keep us in the happy middle ground, and then Socrates clarifies that and says it's not just a matter of escaping the dangers on either side, but that is truly what is best for society and for individuals living in society. Good points that are entirely sound from a Christian perspective, even though even though they were articulated by secular philosophers. Okay? Next we come in this article from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, we come to the section on modern social contract theory. And first of all, we look at Thomas Hobbes. 
Thomas Hobbes lived during the most critical period of early modern England's history, the English Civil War, waged from 1642 to 1648. To describe this conflict in the most general of terms, it was a clash between the king and his supporters, the monarchists, who preferred the traditional authority of a monarch, and the parliamentarians, most notably led by Oliver Cromwell, who demanded more power for the quasi-democratic institution of Parliament. Hobbes represents a compromise between these two factions. On the one hand, he rejects the theory of the divine right of kings, which is most eloquently expressed by Robert Filmer in his Patriarcha, or The Natural Power of Kings, although it would be left to John Locke to refute Filmer directly. Filmer's view held that a king's authority was invested in him, or presumably her, by God, that such authority was absolute, and therefore that the basis of political obligation lay in our obligation to obey God absolutely. So this is just backing up a minute to just kind of grapple with what's being said here. This is essentially the union of church and state. This is papalism. This is saying that the king, the pope, is essentially to be revered as God and that his law is to be obeyed as the law of God, that his authority comes from God. Okay, And that is essentially what Thomas Hobbes rejects. Okay, That's what's being said here. And I think as Christians, we all should agree with that. Obviously, papists still hold to the idea of the divine right of kings in that they revere the Pope as if he were God on earth. But I think by and large, anybody with a reasoning mind can understand and agree with Hobbes in rejecting that fallacy. In a certain sense, all authority does come from God. But that doesn't give kings a divine right because kings are fallible. They are human beings. And there must be some limit or bounds on their power and their authority. So I think to the Western mind and to the Christian mind, there should be no question there. According to this view, then, political obligation is subsumed under religious obligation. That's papalism or the divine right of kings. On the other hand, Hobbes also rejects the early democratic view taken up by the parliamentarians that power ought to be shared between parliament and the king. In rejecting both these views, Hobbes occupies the ground of one who is both radical and conservative. He argues radically for his times that political authority and obligation are based on the individual self-interests of members of society who are understood to be equal to one another, with no single individual invested with any essential authority to rule over the rest, while at the same time maintaining the conservative position that the monarch, which he called the sovereign, must be ceded absolute authority if society is to survive. Okay, so let's break that down now and, and make it simple, make it plain here. Basically, on the one hand, Hobbes recognizes that political authority and obligation, in other words, the functioning of society, the laws of society, and the authority behind those laws are based on individual self-interests of all members of society equally. And not that one king should have some advantage in determining with authority what the laws should be and whose interests should be honored and things like that. Okay, so basically Hobbes is right in rejecting the divine right of kings, all right? But on the other hand, he maintained the conservative position that the monarch, which he called the sovereign, must be ceded absolute authority. In other words, the citizenry must submit to the sovereign if society is to survive. In other words, he could not imagine a democracy that would survive. And this is where Bitcoin starts to come into the picture here, because essentially you could say that Hobbes simply lacked the imagination to see a world in which... For example, 
Bitcoin existed. Bitcoin is perfectly in line with Hobbes' rejection of the divine right of kings, okay? Because Bitcoin does not confer any particular authority to any individual above any other. If there is a king under Bitcoin, it is Bitcoin itself that is the king. And in that sense, we could even say that Hobbes was right on in saying that the sovereign must be ceded absolute authority if society is to survive. We could even read that as an endorsement of Bitcoin as the only answer to society's survival, if we understand it in those terms, that Bitcoin itself, as a system, is the sovereign to whom much must be ceded absolute authority if society is to survive. And that is exactly what we do as Bitcoiners. We cede absolute authority to the system of Bitcoin insofar as we use it. In other words, the Bitcoin we hold, we entrust to the laws of the Bitcoin network, the code. Remember, the code is law. And by running Bitcoin, running the code, we say, that is the law that I abide by. And in so doing, we cede absolute authority to that code, to that law, to that sovereign, to Bitcoin as a system. And we do that because we understand by the code, we understand that the laws of the system are just. And that's what we want. We want that justice. And so the only sort of misnomer here is that in Hobbes's mind, it was a ceding of authority, a giving up of authority to this monarch. Whereas in the system of Bitcoin, insofar as you hold the keys, you hold the coins, your participation in Bitcoin is not a ceding of authority per se. It's not a giving up of authority. It's simply an affirming of the rules. Or you could say it's an equal exchange of you give legitimacy and authority to Bitcoin through your use of the system in exchange for the authority of your own keys, which gives you in turn absolute authority over your own property. So it's a little bit beyond what Hobbes was able to imagine. But what Hobbes was ultimately driving at was that we do need a sovereign capable of sort of enforcing the laws that we as society agree to. Because as individual members, we simply aren't organized in a way for survival without that kind of centralized coordination, so to speak. And again, this comes back to what I said earlier about we are at a point in time where it's not about whether or not we have a one world government. It's a question of which one world government we will have. And it's not a question about whether authority must be centralized or not. It's a question of how that authority is centralized. And I hesitate to use this word in this way because generally in the Bitcoin world, we see centralization as the evil and decentralization as the good. But I'm speaking of centralization in the sense in which the blockchain is centralized. It's actually decentralized, but yet in a certain sense, through consensus, it is centralized. That's not really the right word for it. We, we need a better word. But what I'm trying to express here is that there is one blockchain, the one that everybody agrees upon, the one which has the consensus that is the blockchain. And I'm trying to equate that with this sovereign, this authority that Hobbes described. Okay, so let's let's leave the word centralization out of that. But I, but I do want you to understand that it is a single blockchain, the one that has reached consensus, that is the, the source of absolute truth. And it is so, it's, it's given that sovereign authority by the collective operation of all the Bitcoin nodes. In other words, the people have ceded 
or voted for that absolute authority by running their nodes and forming the consensus on the truth of the blockchain. Okay? All right. I hope we've covered that. And the point I want to kind of emphasize here is that once more, Hobbes is expanding our understanding. He's deepening the theory of social contracts. And we're starting to see that Bitcoin actually fulfills this theory of social contracts in a very perfect way that those who theorized about it could not ever quite imagine. In essence, Bitcoin is a social contract. When you run the code, you are voluntarily entering into this contract with the society of Bitcoiners. Okay? All right. So let's continue here. Hobbes's political theory is best understood if taken in two parts. His theory of human motivation, psychological egoism, and his theory of social contract founded on the hypothetical state of nature. Now, this state of nature is kind of a term that we will see used again and again in this article. And essentially, it means just the natural state of mankind, aside from any contracts or other societal structures. Hobbes has, first and foremost, a particular theory of human nature, which gives rise to a particular view of morality and politics, as developed in his philosophical masterpiece, Leviathan, published in 1651. The scientific revolution, with its important new discoveries that the universe could be both described and predicted in accordance with universal laws of nature, greatly influenced Hobbes. He sought to provide a theory of human nature that would parallel the discoveries being made in the sciences of the inanimate universe. His psychological theory is therefore informed by mechanism, the general view that everything in the universe is produced by nothing other than matter in motion. According to Hobbes, this extends to human behavior. Human behavior can be aptly described as the effect of certain kinds of micro-behavior, even though some of this latter behavior is invisible to us. So, such behaviors as walking, talking, and the like are themselves produced by other actions inside of us. And these other actions are themselves caused by the interaction of our bodies with other bodies, human or otherwise, which create in us certain chains of causes and effects and which eventually give rise to the human behavior that we can plainly observe. We, including all of our actions and choices, are then, according to this view, as explainable in terms of universal laws of nature as are the motions of heavenly bodies. The gradual disintegration of memory, for example, can be explained by inertia. As we are presented with ever more sensory information, the residue of earlier impressions slows down over time. From Hobbes's point of view, we are essentially very complicated organic machines responding to the stimuli of the world mechanistically and in accordance with universal laws of human nature. Okay, now that kind of is a very secular, a very dry and mechanical view of human nature, which I find particularly distasteful as a Christian. But our point here is not to critique Hobbes's view, but just it's important to understand where he's coming from as he describes his views on the social contract theory. Okay, so continuing. In Hobbes's view, this mechanistic quality of human psychology implies the subjective nature of normative claims. Love and hate, for instance, are just words we use to describe the things we are drawn to and repelled by, respectively. So too, the terms good and bad have no meaning other than to describe our appetites and aversions. Moral terms do not, therefore, describe some objective state of affairs, but are rather reflections of individual tastes and preferences. And that's essentially the conclusion that I disagree with and the reason why I find his dry mechanical estimation of human behavior and human nature as being distasteful. He essentially is disavowing all moral responsibility. It's a typical atheistic view. In addition to subjectivism, Hobbes also infers from his mechanistic theory of human nature that humans are necessarily and exclusively self-interested. Now, while I disagree with this, 
it's actually not so bad to make this assumption as sort of a baseline because no doubt many human beings are exclusively self-interested. And essentially, that was Satan's original sin and his original basis for challenging the law of God was out of self-interest and this idea that created beings would be better off if they had total freedom to act in their own self-interest, even if it were to the harm of others. So assuming that as a baseline coming from this atheistic philosopher is not necessarily a bad way to approach the argument here, even if we don't fully agree with it from a Christian perspective, okay? All men pursue, or we could say such men, pursue only what they perceive to be in their own individually considered best interests. They respond mechanistically by being drawn to that which they desire and repelled by that to which they are averse. This is a universal claim. It is meant to cover all human actions under all circumstances, in society or out of it, with regard to strangers and friends alike, with regard to small ends and the most generalized of human desires, such as the desire for power and status. Everything we do is motivated solely by the desire to better our own situations and satisfy as many of our own individually considered desires as possible. We are infinitely appetitive and only genuinely concerned with our own selves. <laughs> In essence, he's describing the sinful condition to a T. And again, it's perhaps helpful, even if we don't agree that that describes all men, in a certain sense, it does insofar as all men are born sinners. And it is helpful in our discussion of society to assume that all men are sinners for the basis of creating a society that tends toward good. So let's keep going with this. According to Hobbes, even the reason that adults care for small children can be explicated in terms of the adults' own self-interest. He claims that in saving an infant by caring for it, we become the recipient of a strong sense of obligation in one who has been helped to survive rather than allowed to die. In other words, even a wicked person will care for their own son. In addition to being exclusively self-interested, Hobbes also argues that human beings are reasonable. They have in them the rational capacity to pursue their desires as efficiently and maximally as possible. Their reason does not, given the subjective nature of value, evaluate their given ends. Rather, it merely acts as scouts and spies to range abroad and find the way to things desired. Rationality is purely instrumental. It can add and subtract and compare sums one to another and thereby endows us with the capacity to formulate the best means to whatever ends we might happen to have. From these premises of human nature, Hobbes goes on to construct a provocative and compelling argument for why we ought to be willing to submit ourselves to political authority. He does this by imagining persons in a situation prior to the establishment of society, which he calls the state of nature. And there we come back to that term again, which is now defined as being the state of persons in a situation prior to the establishment of society. You could think of that as primitive peoples who have no governmental structure. And in the biblical context, you could think of that as the early states of human existence, like, for example, the condition of Adam and Eve just subsequent to the fall, in which case, aptly, their nature was converted into this sinful nature that is very well described by Hobbes, and in which their interests are only essentially self-interests apart from their repentance and their desire and determination to reform and return to the ways of God, okay? According to Hobbes, the justification for political obligation is this. Given that men are naturally self-interested, yet they are rational, they will choose to submit to the authority of a sovereign in order to be able to live in a civil society which is conducive to their own interests. 
So now you could look at this in the context of Adam and Eve's first two children, Cain and Abel, and you can see that it quickly turned into the situation where Cain killed Abel, and it was obvious that without submission to God, to the authority of a sovereign, they would not be able to live in a civil society. And therefore, Cain was sent away. He was not allowed to live in the society of the children of God, Adam and his family. And so we can see very clearly from a Christian perspective that it is indeed conducive to one's own interests to submit to authority, to the authority of a sovereign, ultimately to the authority of God, or by extension to the authority of some leader under God, whether that was Adam as the first human being who even in his fallen state had repented and himself committed to following the authority of God, or whether that's to any other subsequent father or leadership figure that we have so many generations later. So in essence, Hobbes is kind of retracing the foundations of the social contract back to the origins of sin, if, if you will. He's doing so in a, with a completely secular mindset, but we can see that the process of logic that he's following is actually also accurate from a biblical perspective. And so it's helpful for us to trace through this. Hobbes argues for this by imagining men in their natural state, or in other words, the state of nature, or what we've recognized in his descriptions as the sinful nature. In the state of nature, which is purely hypothetical according to Hobbes, or which we know is purely literal in terms of this fallen state of man, man are naturally and exclusively self-interested. They are more or less equal to one another. Even the strongest man can be killed in his sleep. There are limited resources, and yet there is no power able to force man to cooperate. Given these conditions in the state of nature, Hobbes concludes that the state of nature would be unbearably brutal. <laughs> and I think every Christian can easily believe and testify that living in the fallen state is unbearably brutal. In the state of nature, every person is always in fear of losing his life to another. They have no capacity to ensure the long-term satisfaction of their needs or desires. No long-term or complex cooperation is possible because the state of nature can be aptly described as a state of utter distrust. Given Hobbes's reasonable assumption that most people want, first and foremost, to avoid their own deaths, he concludes that the state of nature is the worst possible situation in which men can find themselves. It is the state of perpetual and unavoidable war. Again, aptly describing the sinful nature as exemplified in the story of Cain and Abel. Now, the difference, the thing that we can add to this as Christians that Hobbes could not see is that even living in this state of nature with others who are essentially given to sin, one can have peace and not live in fear, knowing that ultimately, even though death can come in a million forms, perfect obedience to the sovereign God removes all fear because of God's promise of eternal life to those who commit themselves to him. All right, but back to Hobbes's perspective here. The situation is not, however, hopeless, even in Hobbes's mind, because men are reasonable. They can see their way out of such a state by recognizing the laws of nature, which are the laws of God, which show them the means by which to escape the state of nature or the fallen nature and create a civil society. The first and most important law of nature commands that each man be willing to pursue peace when others are willing to do the same, all the while retaining the right to continue to pursue war when others do not pursue peace. So he's just making the observation that even sinful men can recognize that if the other person is willing to cooperate, then it's worth cooperating. And if not, then let there be war still. So this is very interesting because it's bringing the argument for social contract theory from the perspective of entirely sinful beings. 
And I find that to be a very compelling argument, if indeed the social contract theory proves to be viable in the end, which I believe it does. Being reasonable and recognizing the rationality of this basic precept of reason, men can be expected to construct a social contract that will afford them a life other than that available to them in the state of nature, other than every man against every other. This contract is constituted by two distinguishable contracts. First, they must agree to establish society by collectively and reciprocally renouncing the rights they had against one another in the state of nature. So in other words, the first step in agreeing toward peace is renouncing the right to war. Logical. Second, they must imbue some one person or assembly of persons with the authority and power to enforce the initial contract, the contract that says they have no right to war. Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting and kind of where we start to see the limitation because now we need this third person, this external authority, this arbiter, so to speak, that acts anytime there would be a conflict between the two persons who are desiring to be in agreement. In other words, to ensure their escape from the state of nature, they must both agree to live together under common laws and create an enforcement mechanism for the social contract and the laws that constitute it. Now, the weakness here is in this third person, in this external enforcement mechanism that we have always recognized as being government. It's a weakness because this government that we agree to be governed by in order to enforce these common laws always has this potential to become corrupt and to turn against us and to work against us as individuals. Bitcoin, on the other hand, provides an enforcement mechanism. It enforces property rights for those participating in Bitcoin as a social contract. And it does so without the potential of becoming corrupt because every individual can choose to run their own Bitcoin node. And in so doing, they collectively agree on the laws, the common laws and the enforcement mechanism that is in place. And that doesn't change because of the corruption of any individual powers. There are no individuals with enough power to change the system. That would require the 51% attack against Bitcoin as a system. Okay, but in Hobbes's mind, this is still a king. This is still a government of some kind. Since the sovereign is invested with the authority and power to mete out punishments for breaches of the contract, which are worse than not being able to act as one pleases, men have good, albeit self-interested, reason to adjust themselves to the artifice of morality in general and justice in particular. Society becomes possible because whereas in the state of nature there was no power to overawe them all, now there is an artificially and conventionally superior and more powerful person who can force men to cooperate. While living under the authority of a sovereign can be harsh, Hobbes argues that because men's passions can be expected to overwhelm their reason, the sovereign must have absolute authority in order for the contract to be successful. It is at least better than living in the state of nature, that is, in the state of anarchism, so to speak, where you're always in fear that somebody else might kill you. And no matter how much we may object to how poorly a sovereign manages the affairs of the state and regulates our own lives, we are never justified in resisting his power because it is the only thing which stands between us and what we most want to avoid, which is the state of nature, or the unrestrained fallen nature of mankind. Okay, so again, a very interesting sort of retracing of the motivation behind social contracts, assuming the worst case of human nature. And even in that assumption, the argument is in favor of a sovereign. Now, the only question, again, comes back to what is the character of this sovereign that even in the worst case of human nature, everyone would ultimately agree to? And I believe that is the question 
of the hour. Essentially, Satanists would argue here that Satan should naturally be that sovereign who regulates our own lives through the affairs of the state. And I believe that's what we are seeing take shape today in the New World Order. In particular, we are seeing the role that the banks are playing in essentially controlling property and controlling people's access to society, access to the exchange of value in society. That's essentially what society is, is the ability to interact, to exchange, to barter, to give and take. And insofar as money is so crucial to the functioning of society, the posturing of the banks as the middlemen to every interaction of society, especially now through digital means, those who control the money are essentially this sovereign who manages and regulates every individual life. With digital money, it goes so far as that you cannot transact, not even to buy your daily bread, without the involvement of this sovereign state. That's the one option. And on the other hand, we have the option of Bitcoin that we can enter into social contract through. And in so doing, we elect Bitcoin as this sovereign who ensures the justice of all of our transactions and through which we are able to maintain our sovereignty over our own lives and over our fruits, our private property, our money. And in this way, we regulate our own lives. Okay? Again, as Hobbes is presenting, it's not a question of whether the social contract requires a sovereign third party. That's the only way he sees it. The question is simply, what is the character of that sovereign? According to this argument, morality, politics, society, and everything that comes along with it, all of which Hobbes calls commodious living, are purely conventional prior to the establishment of the basic social contract according to which men agree to live together and the contract to embody a sovereign with absolute authority. Nothing is immoral or unjust. Anything goes. After these contracts are established, however, then society becomes possible and people can be expected to keep their promises, cooperate with one another, and so on. The social contract is the most fundamental source of all that is good and that which we depend upon to live as well. Our choice is either to abide by the terms of the contract or return to the state of nature, the sinful state, which Hobbes argues no reasonable person could possibly prefer. So again, even though Hobbes was not approaching this subject from a spiritual perspective, the conclusions that he makes are entirely consistent with Christian views. His view of human nature is entirely consistent with the Christian's view of the sinful human nature. And what he describes as the most fundamental source of all that is good and that which we depend upon to live, the social contract, is essentially the redeemed human nature. In other words, to be civilized is to recognize the need for God. It is repentance. The only question is what is the nature of that God? And as Christians, we know that it is the God of life that obviously offers the most good, and that following the God of the dead obviously ends badly. Given his rather severe view of human nature, Hobbes nonetheless manages to create an argument that makes civil society, along with all its advantages, possible. Within the context of the political events of his England, he also managed to argue for a continuation of the traditional form of authority that his society had long since enjoyed, while nonetheless placing it on what he saw as a far more acceptable foundation. And to this day, England still has a king. Again, whether to have a sovereign is not the question. The question is the character of that sovereign. And I would argue that King Charles represents the sovereignty of Satan controlling the world through the monetary system and that a much better sovereign exists in the form of Bitcoin, which is impartial 
and which defends the private property of those who join in this social contract. And ultimately, the world is facing the choice between a one-world government based on a traditional view of government as sovereign or of the sovereign enforcer of the social contract being government or the system of Bitcoin, which invests in an objective system as being the sovereign that enforces the social contract. In other words... What Hobbes envisioned, and with all imperfections accepted as the foundation of society, is improved by Bitcoin. So just to kind of wrap up this part about Hobbes, essentially he brought us through the entire argument in favor of the social contract from the perspective of sinful mankind, and ultimately argued that a king was still necessary, albeit not with godlike authority, and that this was an acceptable form of society, albeit with obvious risks, obvious downsides. But we see that Bitcoin comes into the picture offering to fulfill Hobbes' vision for society without the downsides, without the possibility of the king becoming corrupted. Interesting. Okay, And helpful, I think, to approach the subject from a perspective of a strictly sinful human nature, because that makes a strong argument for the validity of the social contract, kind of in line with uh, what Bitcoiners say, that Bitcoin is for enemies. In other words, it's just enough that even enemies can transact on Bitcoin without either side being harmed. That's how well it enforces the social contract. All right, so let's go on then to the next section in this article about John Locke. 